Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We'll start the session today with a short meditation, just a silent meditation today. And you're welcome to start posting questions in the chat. You're welcome to post things that aren't questions, as long as it's mindful. Please don't answer other people's questions, but say hello. If you don't have any questions, just close your eyes and we'll meditate quietly. And once we've collected some questions after the meditation, then we'll start to answer them. So first, a silent meditation.
All right. So if we have questions, we can start with questions. If there aren't any, or if we run out, we can just sit quietly. But from now on, only questions in the chat, please. Thank you, Pante. We do have questions. How do you drop the desire of samadhi during meditation? Well, you don't drop desire. You understand that the things you're desiring are not worth desiring. So, in this case, samadhi. Um, you you observe the samadhi mindfully. You observe what it is that you like. Uh, you observe the pleasurable feeling, calm feeling, and you see that it's unpredictable, unsatisfying, uncontrollable, and the desire doesn't arise. I mean, practically, you also see that the desire itself is stressful, doesn't actually make you happy. But basically, the basic answer is, practically speaking, you practice mindfulness. We're not trying to drop things. Questions like this are common, but it shows the the problem that we are trying to fix things that we're trying to change things rather than understand them. Change comes through understanding. That's how it works. When traveling, there are so many things happening at once. How does one use noting in really distracting environments or just keep as the meditation course prescribes? Yeah, if your mind is flitting from one thing to another, you can note distracted, distracted. But in outside of formal practice, you can just note the postures, walking, standing, sitting, lying. But there's really no limit. The, the point is you don't have to catch everything. You just have to try to be mindful of something. doesn't matter what. Something that's present. So you try not to ignore things, but if there are multiple things or they're very quick, just note whatever you can at a, at an ordinary, at a comfortable pace. What are some ways one can go into seclusion with the aim of practicing meditation? Well, there are two kinds of seclusion. Uh, Gaya Viveka and Jitta Viveka. Gaya Viveka is where you take the body into seclusion. So I'm, I'm not sure what, if that's your question, it's um, I'm not sure what, what sort of answer I can give you. Find a way to find uh, an empty place. It's pretty self-explanatory. Um, but jitta viveka means to segregate the mind in the sense of 
pulling the mind away from uh, defilements, from hindrances. And that takes mindfulness, that takes uh, clarity of mind, focus, discipline. That takes a skill, and that's what we're cultivating through the practice. As you practice mindfulness, you find your mind is more secluded from the defilements. Is it common for meditation to bring up old, buried feelings which can manifest in anger, resentment, sadness, etc.? Well, sometimes, um, and there's lots of things that happen when you meditate. You can be triggered by the meditation because it's it's unsatisfying or it's... Um, It's contrary to our desires. We're, we're accustomed to getting what we want when we want it, and mindfulness prevents that. And so there can be it can actually give rise to irritation that we didn't know we had. It's not really buried. It's just um, tendencies based on our situation. It's like, um, you know, in science class, they talk about uh, potential energy. Like a boulder up on top of a cliff has a lot of potential energy, but it's really meaningless, right? Does it have energy? Technically, it's like it's like that. If the, does the mind have anger? No, it's just how the mind is situated. So if your mind is in a precarious situation through constantly feeding your desires, then it's like a powder keg, right? Any little spark will set it off. It's, you can't really say it's buried emotions. It's just the potential for the emotions to arise, potential for uh, those things. And, and it's based on how you situate yourself, which is why you should take the boulder off the cliff, put it on the ground. And in, you know, in, in terms of the mind means you should um, extricate yourself from your addictions so that you are not, uh, you don't have the potential or things like anger, resentment, sadness. Um, another thing is mindfulness clears the mind, so it allows you to focus better, and that focusing is going to allow you to bring into greater clarity things that you often try to avoid. So people who have past trauma try to avoid it, and meditation brings that up, which is risky in a sense because um, it's a trigger, right? And it can cause negative emotions, which are not wholesome. But the idea is that mindfulness gives you the tools to face and that ultimately facing is better for you. It's more healthy rather than, again, the precarious situation of always having to run away until you can't run away. I have committed to practice two hours of sitting meditation every day. I have found that some days I have to stop my other important work to fulfill my commitment. Am I overdoing it? Yeah, hours isn't really the answer. I mean, it's great to hear that, um, though I would recommend, of course, to do half walking and half sitting rather than just two hours of sitting a day. Um, I'm not sure if you're even doing our meditation technique, but we do recommend walking half first and then sitting. Um, but I don't know, as far as interrupting other commitments, it depends how important those commitments are to you. And I mean, one thing I guess I would say is that uh, it's important to be practical in your commitments. 
Like there, there's no benefit to a commitment if you just keep breaking it or if it, it forces you to create hardship that creates stress and so on that, that is goes against your meditation practice. I mean, that being said, ultimately giving up your entire livelihood and, and living in poverty in order to meditate is actually you know, preferable if you can, if you can swing it. What does one exactly do when practicing insight meditation? Well, I'd recommend that you read our booklet on how to meditate. Um, what one does when practicing insight meditation is uh, cultivates satipatthana. So insight meditation, I don't like to use the word insight. I don't think it's an accurate translation. The word is vipassana, which doesn't really mean insight. It means seeing clearly. Um, so in order to see clearly, you practice satipatthana. So the practice is more accurately called satipatthana vipassana meaning you practice satipatthana in order to uh, reach or attain uh, vipassana, the state of seeing clearly. So I recommend reading our booklet. It'll teach you how to practice the satipatthana, and you can do our at-home course if you really want to get into it. But uh, that, that's better than me trying to explain it here. I do not feel a lot of progress in meditation, though I practice it every day, and this drives down my motivation. How to stay motivated on this path and not give up? Well, part of the progress in meditation is dealing with those emotions and dealing with the desire for progress, uh, because that's a red herring in itself. I mean, that's a part of why we're practicing, is in order to give up hankering after the future, desire for some goal some reward right those are are a part of the problem that we're we're, we're uh, addressing so rather than see that as a problem to be discouraged i see that as a object to be mindful of you're you're expecting something and that's causing you stress and suffering so be mindful of that i don't think you need motivation you just have to you just need mindfulness looking for motivation like as a, a carrot, right? The carrot and the stick. It's not really about either a carrot or a stick. You have to see the the if you need a carrot and a stick, then you're you're vulnerable. You're dependent. <laughs> and we want to be independent. Anisito Joviharati. I suppose it is very important to be mindful during death. What experiences can I expect during and after death? Do the near-death experiences agree with the wisdom of Buddhism? I, I, I guess the near, what you hear about near-death experiences are, um, are accurate. I mean, we're, we're not going by some view or, or idea of the way things are. We're just trying to describe the way things actually are. And there's not a multitude of the way things are. So uh, one thing about near-death experiences is they are subjective. So the way a person describes their near-death experience is often inaccurate. Like, I saw God, I saw heaven, 
Um, I know where I'm going, that sort of thing. Uh, I, I talked to someone who was sure that when he died, he, he knew where he was going because he had a near-death experience. And that 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 certainty is 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 all in his mind. Like, who knows what it's going to be like next time? It could be completely different next time he when he actually does die. Uh, but so so interpretations are are a bit of an issue. Uh, what can you expect during and after death? Pretty much the same. It's going to be a a scary time, but but you have to remember that it's still going to be seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. I mean, it'll obviously feel a lot different like you'll experience it most people experience death as something exceptional but that's really because they haven't pulled themselves out of the uh, contrived nature of their existence they aren't able to see reality just as seeing hearing smelling tasting feeling and thinking if you're able to do that and this is why the buddha talked about it so often then death is no different than any other experience it's it's actually much more important to to be skilled at mindfulness because death is just one instant and it comes very quickly of course right so if you're not ready if you haven't practiced before you you die it can be quite risky don't don't prepare yourself mentally by saying okay when death comes i'll practice in this way practice now and then whatever comes be it death or anything You'll be ready for it. Can you please clarify the third precept? Um, the third precept of the five precepts is to uh, abstain from wrong sensual activity. So you might include any romantic activity and i think broadly it can be interpreted as something that that is harmful to to someone that that is uh, malicious or or uh, cruel or um, inconsiderate so i mean i mean more more strictly it's usually uh, relating to breaking up relationships or betraying bonds so if you're married and you go outside of if you go behind your partner's back um then, then that's probably breaking it and if someone else is married and you break up their relationship or you, you inject yourself behind the back of one of the participants that sort of thing you know adultery is what it's usually referred to as um, but I would say any sexual or romantic activity that is non-consensual or um, a betrayal or that sort of thing, it, it falls under that. I mean, that's the kind of thing we abstain from. Remember, it's not these aren't laws that you must keep or you go to jail or something. These are precepts that we undertake on our own. So rather than asking what they're about so much, ask yourself what's, um, what, what, what your reason for doing it is. Right? Don't just keep them because someone told you keep the five precepts. Try and understand what is wrong about this so that you don't have to ask, like, is it okay if I uh, cheat on my girlfriend or boyfriend? Uh, or, or what if I'm not married and someone else cheats with me and they're married? Right? 
you know, ask yourself what it's doing to these people and, and try and understand what the meaning behind it is. And you'll get a sense of, well, this is wrong. You know, this is cruel and, and inconsiderate and so on. Devastating to people. I mean, it's just unharmonious. It's, it's uh, putting lust above uh, consideration and that sort of thing. And of course, a sexual assault is, is I think, an extreme example that uh, sexual harassment even, right? I mean, one thing that's probably not talked about enough that should be, especially in modern times, considering how mindful we are now as, soci as modern society about it, is sexual harassment, unwanted, um, what do you call it? unwanted advances, so sexual or romantic advances, unwanted touching, if you touch someone without their consent, in, in with a sexual uh, intent, that sort of thing, even just uh, hugs, that sort of thing, kisses, uh, touch, grabbing, touching, that sort of thing, you know, and e even I would say uh, comments, right? It's considered sexual harassment in the workplace, and, and I think you could argue that that, I mean, it's not about did you break the rule or not, it's about shouldn't you you know, be more mindful than doing that. If someone, I mean, there's an acknowledgement that you, five people who keep the five precepts are still, it's okay for them to have romantic and sexual activity, but aren't you better than that, that you're going to, uh, you know, isn't it, don't you really see how against the Dhamma that is to uh, you know, harass someone like that? And so those kind of things, I, I think um, we don't talk about enough and really should. And, and of course, uh, sexual assault, I, I think, which is a huge problem in the world. It's um, absolutely considered to be evil, and it's very much what, as Buddhists, we are against. I get a lot of past memories, especially with my ex-partner. It's disturbing me a lot and stops me from being truthful to practice. How to subdue such thoughts? Right, the need to subdue them is part of the problem. Again, it gets back to this idea of having to fix your your perceived problems. The thoughts are not a problem; they're just thoughts. The thoughts don't disturb you. The memories don't disturb you. Your reaction is is disturbing, is is stressful, is suffering. And so, what you have to do is change your reaction. That's what we're working on, trying to see that there is no benefit to reacting in that way, that they're just not worth it. And this is where non-self, the 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 um, intellectual understanding of non-self, and of course, ultimately, the practical understanding of non-self can help. Where you start to um, take on the perspective of it, 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 there's no me about these thoughts. The memories are not of me or or of my partner, my ex-partner, right? Um, try and see them just as experiences, and even the emotions and this this disturbing and the stress and, and so on, the pain and the suffering. Try and just see them as experiences, and and eventually you'll you'll objectively and and directly see that there is no meanness about this, and and therefore they don't disturb me. They just arise and they cease. So trying to subdue them is the common but wrong approach. That's what we're trying to address with mindfulness. I find Vipassana can bring about great calm 
and even long periods of no thoughts or feelings besides the rising and falling. I feel guilty that this is happening, because it's pleasant. Any advice? Well, if it's pleasant, then there is a feeling. There's a pleasant feeling, and calm is calm. It's a very common thing for people to miss the calm, to not be mindful of calm or, or pleasant, which is you know, ignoring an entire one quarter of the practice, which is vedana. So you do have to know when you feel calm, you should focus on the calm until it goes away and just say, calm, calm. If you feel happy, say happy. If you like something, say liking. If you feel guilty about something, note that as well. There's nothing special about those experiences. Can you please explain the difference between anapanasati and satipatthana? Are both vipassana meditations? Is there a particular cause the Buddha gave both practices to his students? Well, anapanasati can be mindfulness of the body. I mean, technically it really is, right? It's the, what, is, what is breathing? The body is breathing. The problem is that because breath is a concept, like there is actually no breath, there's just the physical experiences of the four um the physical experiences of the 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 four elements earth air water or earth air fire and and water indirectly so talking about so focusing on the breath can be a um samatha practice like if you say in one out one or even just counting one two three four that sort of thing that's very much on the samatha side uh, but if you focus on the physical elements, the four elements, like the heat and the cold at the nostrils or the pressure in the chest or the stomach, then that's vipassana. It's just a matter of what your focus is. So the problem, the problem, and it's not really a problem, but the issue that comes up with anapanasati is not understanding that difference, sort of thinking of it as a monolithic thing. Oh yeah, I'm practicing anapanasati. Well, what kind of anapanasati are you practicing? What what is your actual object? Because it's misleading to say anapanasati. Not, I mean, it sounds like I'm going against what the Buddha said, but it's just that it's not. It's just you have to understand that there are different ways of practicing anapanasati, and neither one is wrong. Neither one is 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 against the practice. But if you practice samatha first, you still do eventually have to switch to practicing vipassana. That's all. So the Buddha gave all sorts of different practices to his students, but anapanasati. One way of describing what we do is anapanasati. So it's not that the, we're practicing something different, or that the Buddha gave satipatthana and anapanasati. I mean, most people who practice satipatthana are also practicing a form of anapanasati. I mean, it's the first part of the satipatthana sutta. I imagine fantasy worlds in my head as a form of escapism, and daydream often. When experiencing escapist thoughts, do I say imagining? I'm curious about Buddhist views on imagination. Yeah, you can note imagining. Um, you can also note curious. Um, but escapism is usually you li a liking and enjoying of it, so you have to note the liking as well. If you're escaping something, then you have to note you should you're much better off at noting the thing that you're just escaping, even if it's just boredom. 
but if it's some kind of trauma or something like that, you should try and you're much better served by noting those things that you're trying to escape from. Because escaping is again this this sort of precarious situation where you're more and more averse to it and you're increasingly um, vulnerable to it. So that when you ever do have to face it and are unable to escape it, you're going to be uh, faced with great suffering. Can you see the three universal truths in walking meditation? Uh, you mean the three? You mean probably the three characteristics? There are four. You're, you're, because you have to use your terminology properly. There are four noble truths, uh, but you're probably talking about the three characteristics, universal characteristics. They're not quite universal. They are uh, samanya, meaning they're. That's one way of saying universal, but samanya only um, only encompasses sankharas, so it only encompasses arisen things. It's just a technicality for all intents and purposes, basically everything. So basically universal. Um, the three universal characteristics, of course, you can see them in any experience, um, but the only way you can see them is if your mind is clear and sharp. Uh, and so it takes time and practice, but the the seeing itself can come in anything. You don't have to be even practicing formal meditation. But in the movement of the foot, of course, there's uh, impermanence because it arises and ceases. There's the inability to satisfy or or the dukkha nature of it because it's just not worth clinging to because it arises and ceases. I mean, it's with your foot, it's not something you're likely to unless you have some kind of uh, weird, quirky craving for, for attachment to feet um you're you're not likely to to cling to your foot except we do we cling to our entire body you know we're looking at our feet oh my feet are beautiful or ugly or wrinkly or or too big or too small or that sort of thing or they're they're cute or they're not cute or that sort of thing so um even our feet help you seeing seeing dukkha means to give up the idea that there are sukha See that there's nothing sukha about any arisen phenomenon, and anatta to see that they're not me, not mine, and they don't have a, an entity in themselves. So the foot itself doesn't actually exist. When you focus, when you practice walking meditation, your perspective changes, and you see the foot as just a, an experience of pressure and movement, heat and cold, hardness and so, softness, that sort of thing. When you actually experience it coming in contact with the world. I am considering doing an intensive course. What is the role and purpose of prostration? It would feel fake or forced. Would it be mandatory in the intensive course, or is it possible to train without? Uh, it's not mandatory at the moment. Um, it's recommended. And uh, its main purpose is, well, let's say two, the twofold. First is just as a very good wake-up exercise. In the beginning, there's lots of little movements, so it's a very good way to start the practice. Um, but the other thing is to pay respect to the practice, to uh, set in your mind a uh, perspective, uh, an outlook, you know, a, um, a determination in your mind to, to, to take the practice seriously. So you're not bowing down to the Buddha or something. You're uh, actually 
paying respect to the practice. But no, it's not mandatory. Could you list some tangible benefit in the now of the practice? I'm lacking energy and faith in putting a lot of effort. I wish I could be regular and have more determination and energy. Well, one tangible benefit might be the resolving of this quandary in your mind. If you were to be mindful of this wrestling uh, and the, the state of it, lack of energy and the doubt and that sort of thing, um, you'd, you'd find uh, some great benefit there, well, some moderate benefit at the very least. Uh, but it's really all like that. It's just about being more clearly aware of our experiences so that we no longer react and are triggered by them and suffer from them. That's the most tangible benefit. What would you recommend for a beginner meditator to do this summer? Well, you could take our at-home course. If you haven't done that yet, if you're really a beginner, we have an at-home meditation course. Read our booklet and do the at-home course. And we just meet online once a week. You can practice anywhere, outside, inside. Just try and do walking and sitting together, walking first and then sitting. If you can do at least an hour a day, that's a good start. Uh, if, you know, if you really want to get into it, you could uh, find a way to do an intensive course. We should be opening up a new meditation center in the not-so-distant future, so that should be open should be open this summer unless things change uh, so you could look into that as well i have tinnitus which is a constant ringing in the ear can you give me any advice for living my daily life with having this constant discomfort so hearing a sound isn't a discomfort and i know it most likely seems that way but the discomfort comes from the disliking of it and any kind of maybe a headache that can come even from that but um what's not perhaps um what you want to hear is that the the best way is to um, be at peace with the sound so rather than seeing it as a discomfort, try and see it just as hearing, or you know, experience it just as hearing. Try, so the practice would be to say to yourself, hearing, hearing. And when you dislike it, say disliking, disliking. When you feel pain, like a headache or whatever, say pain, pain or aching. And part of it is just getting your head around the fact that it may or may not ever go away. I mean, it may never go away. and. Uh, stop wishing for it or hoping for it to go away. Get a better relationship with it. Sometimes I have emotions or feelings, and I can't quite find the right mantra to express it. Would confused suffice until it becomes more clear upon further meditation? Yeah, that's fine. You can also note feeling if you really don't know what the feeling is feeling, but... Often it's either on the liking or the disliking side, so try and keep it simple like that. If you can identify it as as a, a positive in the sense of a, a attractive emotion or a repulsive emotion, so the like some sort of liking or some sort of disliking, then try and note liking or disliking. 
Usually they have that kernel. If it's an emotion, it's usually one or the other. Could you say precisely how noting liking and wanting can break through the craving and lust? How can one eradicate it and lead to abandonment of it? It seems really an impossible goal to me. Well, noting liking and wanting isn't really going to cut it. You have to be able to see that the things that you like and want are not worth liking and wanting. And yeah, that takes a lot of work, but it takes a methodical um, observation of those objects. So suppose we take a very simplistic example of someone who is uh, who likes food a lot. Um, well, the thing about food is it's not actually worth liking. There's nothing special about it. There's nothing attractive about even the tastes of the food. So if you're very mindful, you will see that through being mindful of the tastes. Mind, Of course, mindful of liking and wanting as well. That helps clear your mind. But ultimately, just experiencing again and again and again how unpleasant, I mean, not, not exactly unpleasant, but non-pleasant, uh, eating is eating is such a chore. It's, and that person who goes through an intensive meditation course, usually by the end they're just saying, oh, I've got to go for food again. I wish I could just not have to eat anymore because it's so kind of icky and unpleasant. Well, it doesn't have to be unpleasant, but it, there's, there's no pleasure, pleasure involved once you see clearly. So it may seem impossible, but that's only because of how we wrongly perceive things, are, are deeply entrenched, but wrong, and not based on actual observation, how deeply entrenched our views are, our, our, our perceptions are. What are your thoughts on the concept of the citta as defined in the Thai forest tradition, for example, as a pure observing or awareness? Is this something that should be considered in the practice? I mean, those are just words, and it sounds good to me. Honestly, what you're describing in your your question sounds fine. My, my thoughts are that that sounds a lot like what we do. Um, I do know that in some traditions in Thailand that call themselves the uh, not the Thai forest. That's not a great translation. The Wat Ba tradition, which means the Ba Ba monastery tradition. Ba means jungle or forest, but it's just because all their monasteries started with Wat Ba this, Wat Ba that. That's why it got the tr name of that tradition. And in that tradition, there are uh, some teachers who are very highly revered, who I think seem to have uh, non-Buddhist views of jitta as being permanent, undying, that sort of thing. So if there's any indication of that, if if that's correct, and I'm not really I'm not sure. I, you know, I just this is what uh, my feeling is that there might be. And if that is the case, then that's wrong. But what you're describing there as a, a jitta that is pure and observing, that's basically what we describe as well. The idea is to just be observed and, and and aware. But the real question is how you get to that state. And if you can apply that state to actual things that are arising and ceasing as opposed to just applying it to a concept. See, it's much easier to apply that to a samatha object where it's a concept in your mind, like a light or a um, an element or something like that. But if you have to apply that to reality, that's where the real... Uh, 
reward comes from because then you can see the three characteristics and uh, let go of craving. If I can't find a teacher, should I still do noting practice? Well, that's a strange hypothetical because I'm a teacher. I mean, I don't call myself a teacher per se, but, well, I guess I, I am. You know, I, I, I can teach. I just don't, I don't like the title per se, but I don't think anyone should really have that title except for the Buddha. He's our teacher. Um, so, so, I mean, I can show you unless unless you maybe you don't like me or maybe you think i'm i'm not uh, suitable for whatever reason maybe i'm not qualified or whatever then um if that were the case then i would still say yes i don't think you need a teacher per se the great thing about satipatthana practice is it's fairly safe why is it safe it's it's safer than most meditations because it's based on reality you're not going to get lost as easily or as likely in concepts because you're really not focusing on them and reality is just going to drag you back down to earth right you, you won't get lost in illusion and delusion as easily as you will with samatha with samatha the problem with concepts is there's an infinite number of them and the mutations that they, they can mutate because they're illusory right in your mind you part some actual techniques involve manipulating concepts uh, but but under very controlled um, guidelines you know? so if you're not strictly controlled by those guidelines then it's quite easy to get lost so mindfulness isn't something you should be afraid of if you're focused on reality if you have a good instruction manual you still kind of need a teacher because you need a, a someone to teach you how to do it but it sounds like you've already gotten that. If you read stuff by Mahasi Sayadaw, really just reading the Mahasi Sayadaw's instructions on how to practice is, is all you need to get started. If you want to really progress, then you'd be much better off finding a teacher and doing a, a course either remotely or intensively. But you can really see great benefit even without that. I've I got testimonials from people who say their lives were changed just by practicing without a teacher. I have just pure hatred for every person. No matter how far I investigate myself, others never fail to disappoint. I cannot break this pure hatred. Is there any way? Well, we're not trying to break. Um, part of it is going to be changing your perspective you don't have pure hatred right see that's a part of the problem when it's mine you lose your capacity to see it objectively you're you're already using it like a weapon like a possession right you're already looking beyond it to me being angry uh, it's misleading to say that it's not correct the truth is that hatred arises and it ceases um, and it's also a bit misleading to say you have it for every person. Um, you don't have hatred for people. What happens is hatred arises triggered by things, by experiences. And so learning about what those experiences are and observing the process to the point where you see how stressful and useless and harmful it is, is the solution. Don't try to break or or 
let go of or that sort of thing. That's all wrong practice. Right practice is to try and see the hatred as something that arises and ceases and see it arising, see it ceasing. And the things that you hate, the things that trigger the hatred, it's not a person, it's a thought about a person or a, a sound that the person makes or a, a memory or a vision even of seeing people, a thought about something someone did, etc., etc. But it's those experiences of the thoughts and the visions and the sounds, that, that's what triggers it. Well, and the processing of those things. The, the thinking about them, the sankharas. So those are real, and those are what you should be trying to focus on. If you come to see them clearly, your mind will absolutely, absolutely uh, move away from anger because it's so stressful. I'm finding insects to be a difficult pest to handle. I ask them to leave but this seems futile and not in line with reality. How do I handle pests in my home without killing them? I'm trying to think of who would have taught you to ask them to leave. It does sound like a Buddhist thing to do, um, ask them to leave as though it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's not really Buddhist to ask them to leave. Kind of is, but you need a very strong mind for that to have any sort of effect. You need a very high perfections, I would say. If you're a very perfect, you know, a person who has developed to the extent of a bodhisattva or something, then maybe that's going to work. But ultimately, what you're seeing there is non-self. That, yeah, the universe is not under my control. So that's a that's an experience, a realization that, yes, you're not God. Um, and uh, asking insects to leave, gosh, asking people to leave usually doesn't work. Asking insects to leave not really in line with the reality. Um, well, I say don't call them pests, first of all. It's not going to solve your problem, but that's not right. I'm going to reprimand you for calling them pests. They are living beings, and uh, calling something a pest is pejorative. I mean, not really a reprimand. That's what we call them, but that's not right. How do I handle insects? Uh, I mean, the, the real answer is you don't handle them. You live your life and they live their life. Now, when other beings impinge upon your livelihood, your, your ability to live your life, then actions can be taken, but you really should try and limit it to your ability to live your life um, and, and try to impinge upon their lives as little as possible. Now, with ants, that's hard. Um, with termites, it can be very hard. There's not any really good answer, but what I've said before is that there are often solutions that we don't know about simply because society doesn't care to know to learn about them. Right? When when a when these pests bother us, we kill them. That's what you do. You call or you call someone in to kill them. So nobody ever thought, hey, we should. Is there another way? Because well, this way works. Just kill them. It doesn't work. They just keep coming back and you just keep developing worse and worse karma and cruelty in your mind and corruption in your mind and bring yourself farther and farther from freedom from suffering. Um, there are organizations like PETA, P-E-T-A, and apparently they even make humane mosquito traps. Uh, so you could look into what they teach because they're hardcore, you know, and really 
I think, uh, praiseworthy from a Buddhist perspective to some extent. I think some of the things they do are probably a bit radical in terms of the proactive trying to stop people from killing. But uh, things like they, they mailed the President of the United States a humane mosquito trap after he killed a, or a fly trap, sorry. He killed a fly on live television and he was very proud of it. And so they, they publicly, they made a public announcement they were sending him a, a humane fly trap. Uh, and I think that's quite noble of them. It was quite awful to see the president gloating over killing a poor innocent fly. How important is a Sangha for the development of spirituality? I have no friends who are into spirituality, and everyone I know and see thinks I'm strange. Well, that's pretty helpful. It's pretty valuable. You know, it's something that many of us might want to take into account when we decide how and, and where to live our lives, uh, moving to a place where you can be ne nearer to people. Now, one advantage of the internet, of course, is that we don't have to always move to be in contact with a community. So we have an online community, and Chris and uh, Jim are a part of that community, and we mostly organize around Discord, but I think it's really, um, we have some channels for discussion about Buddhism and practice, and I think they've really been helpful to sort of bring people together and answer each other's questions. Um, it's not a replacement for an in-person community, which I guess we're kind of hoping to cultivate at our new place. But uh, in some ways, it's it's not an either-or situation, and the online community is going to always be an important part of our community because it's an all-the-time thing. It's an on-demand community, and it's it's worldwide, so you don't have to be in a certain place of the world to take part. So finding an online community might be a good start. How does one respond to the atrocities occurring in Ukraine? as well as other areas of the world. It can be emotionally overwhelming, even when noting sad, sad, etc. Yeah, well, remember, noting sad isn't going to make the sadness go away, um, and it'll be even harder to make it, to, to be free from it, uh, if you're triggering it by constantly going over or, or you know, ingesting information that triggers it. So you have to be careful about, I mean, it's not so much about the information that you ingest, it's about your desire to ingest it. And this sort of, an, I don't know what the word would be, a newsy? Newsy might be a word. I wonder if someone's coined that already. Like a foodie, someone who is addicted to food. A newsy, someone who is addicted to news. Um, you know, you go through this cycle of reading the news, getting depressed about it. My father does this. <laughs> Sorry, shouldn't bring my family into this, but not just my father. I, I mean, I, I know the feeling where you read the news and, and emotions come up and, and you sort of do it as a, a cycle and you get caught up in this addiction to feeling bad because of the news or angry. Anger is another one. You read about the atrocities of war and you get angry about it. Um, and that, that isn't to say that you should ignore it. I mean, I think, of course, the, the what's happening in Ukraine is something we should talk about, and we certain, certainly should denounce 
the atrocities and uh, be clear that the people who are performing them are performing evil deeds and it's wrong of them to perform those deeds and it's quite um, unfortunate that they're doing that but um, try and look at your attitude where not not so much trying to be informed or not trying to be informed but your reasons for trying to be informed and the process you go through and you're you're becoming informed you get angry with what you read and so on and try to change that try to approach news and information with a more objective perspective because sadness doesn't help it's just anger Is there a meditation center in India which teaches meditation as taught by Mahasi Sayadaw? So far in my research, I have not found one. There's one in Lumbini, which is the closest that I know. Um, there is Wat Thai of Saranat that you know doesn't has a meditation center and hosts courses, some of which I think are along the lines of Mahasi Sayadaw courses. I mean, people from Jom Tong have taught courses there in the past. I've never have. We talked about it once. Um, but, well, you could if you could talk to them, maybe I could go there and teach a course. It's probably hard. I mean, I'm sure they have a real bureaucracy and so on, but we could hold a course in Saranat. Honestly, I hadn't thought about that in a while, but a long time ago we thought about it. And because they have a center that's not really used that much, and I think, you know, the, I think the thing is, you'd book it and you'd have to pay money for it. They'd expect uh, payment, so everyone would have to chip in, I guess, whoever went to the course. But I, I, I imagine it's doable, and it'd be quite a thing to to have a course at Saranat. It's quite a nice place. Is right compassion? just observance of another person's suffering? I don't know that there is right compassion. Right compassion, as though it's one of the Eightfold Noble Path. Compassion isn't part of the Eightfold Noble Path. It's, uh, compassion is, is not a absolutely required mind state for enlightenment. Uh, it's, it's, it's probably better described as sort of a... Um, fruit of the practice a person who is enlightened to the extent that they're enlightened they're going to be more compassionate um, but that's not quite fair because there is something we could call right compassion i just wouldn't put it in quotes like that like there is no thing called right compassion but there are two kinds of compassion or there's compassion and then there's something that passes as compassion really there's either compassion or not but there are some mind states that seem to be compassion but they're not it's called the near enemy the near enemy of compassion is sadness right compassion is absence of cruelty um so it, it is not just observance of another person's suffering it's the absence of a desire for a person to, to suffer which which may sound quite still quite negative but if someone is suffering and you don't do anything, um, you're you're repressing the natural inclination to help them. A person who has absence of cruelty is much more likely to help a person who is in need, if it's appropriate. 
Now, it often looks like inaction because it's quite often not appropriate. Like there's usually nothing you can do except get angry or cause more suffering by hurting others or by injecting yourself in a situation. But if someone falls down, you pick them up. You don't just watch them suffer. That's not compassion. That's cruel. Thank you, Bhante. That's all the questions that we're prepared to ask today. Great. Good questions. Thank you all. I wish you all peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.